You're listening to the Mark Driscoll Ministries podcast. Pastor Mark and Grace Driscoll's new book, Win Your War, looks at how God creates and Satan counterfeits. There's a spiritual attack for your relationship with God, others, yourself, and the church. This is a super biblical and practical book. Order Win Your War today. All right, we've just got a few weeks left in the Win Your War series. After that, we'll be in Philippians, if you want to read ahead. January, we'll jump into Daniel. Next summer, we'll jump into Romans. So if you're really one of those studious types, now you know how to get yourself ready for the next six months. Today, we're going to talk about this issue, heal from wounds in the past and fears for the future. And my prayer going into this sermon series has been that whatever is keeping you from what God has for you, that that would be made known to you so that God could remove it from the path that he has called you to walk. And it's been really encouraging. We have seen people become Christians during this series. All of a sudden they realize, I need Jesus. That, that is the most important need that I have. We have seen people physically healed. We have seen people who have reported to us that as they're struggling with medical conditions that they wondered whether or not it was spiritual, they prayed and were healed and delivered. God is still alive and at work and doing good things in people's lives, which we rejoice in and celebrate, right? Uh, In addition, we've seen a lot of emotional, spiritual, relational breakthroughs for people. People learning to forgive, to extend grace, to reconcile relationships, and to have some hope and some joy return to their life. And that's exactly what we want for you. That being said, today I wanna talk about things from the past and things in the future, and where you're living today, it's like a vice that can get pressed with those two circumstances. Some of the things from the past can cause pressure in life. Some of the fears for the future can similarly cause pain in the present. And I wanna deal with both of those. The first thing I wanna talk about is pains from the past. And we're gonna talk about your father. And then we're gonna talk about your future. Uh, That being said, I'll start by also saying that I think the biggest variable that determines the quality of your life apart from God, humanly speaking, is who your father is. Your father is powerful. Your father is influential. Your father is significant whether they're present in your life or not. I'll show you the last lines of the Old Testament. God isn't going to write a book of the Bible after he says this for 400 years. So you think of what would be the last thing you were gonna tell somebody? Well, it's probably the most important thing. And what God does is he speaks to the men. And this is a big part of my heart is to help men to learn the love of God and then to love their wives and kids with God's love. Malachi chapter four, verses five and six, God says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. So just as the Holy Spirit empowered Elijah, so there would be the next version of a prophet and he would be John the baptizer, fulfilling this ministry before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn, what's the line? The hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. That's language for demonic, unseen realm. Fathers do one of two things in life. They bring blessing or cursing. They're burden givers or burden lifters. They, um, they will either heal you or they will break you. They will give to you or take from you. They'll architect a world that causes you to flourish or they will fail to architect that world. And as a result, you will flounder. 
That being said, God's desire is that his people, particularly the children, would be blessed and not cursed. And that really starts in the heart of the men. That we live in a day, however, that many men don't have a heart for not only children, but their own children. For the first time in the nation's history, the majority of children born to women ages 30 and under, those children are born out of wedlock with no father. Uh, the majority of children at some point in their life will be living with their mother and her boyfriend, not a father. 40% of kids tonight go to bed without a father. Most of our economic, social, legal problems are related to fatherlessness. The presence of a loving father makes life significantly better. The absence of that father makes life increasingly more painful. And so I wanna just ask this question. Was your father a blessing or a cursing? And, and, and what kind of father did you have? I, I like to say there's five kinds of dads. There's the, the tragic dad. It's not that he, he didn't love you and he didn't care for you, but he wasn't invested or involved in your life because he was sick or he died. Something tragic happened to where he was not part of your life. Number two, some people have a terrible dad. Um, he's mean, he's non-relational. Oftentimes these men, something in the past broke them and they never healed up, or they're just very selfish. They really, they see kids or their kids as an inconvenience and an expense. And as a result, they're, they're a terrible dad. How many of you had a tough dad? It was more like living with a drill sergeant or a college defensive coordinator for a football team or a wrestling coach, right? They always had a dip in their mouth and fire in their eyes and were yelling commands at you. These are the dads who push and they want performance. And if they don't get it, they punish. They're, they're, they're very pushy. Those can be tough dads. The, the converse of that is a tender dad. They're sweet, they're kind, they're nice, they're loving, but they don't understand how to protect and defend the family. I always tell men, you need to be tough for your family, tender with your family. If all you are is tough with your family, you will break them. If all you are is tender with your family, you'll allow others to break them. You don't like conflict. You don't wanna get in the middle. You don't, you don't want anybody not to like you. Uh, particularly, let's say you're raising daughters. This is the guy who loves his daughter, but lets dangerous guys date his daughter and he doesn't protect them. And then there is the terrific dad. There is no such thing as a perfect dad. The longer I am a dad, the more I realize that I am not a perfect dad. There's no such thing as a perfect dad, but a, a terrific dad is one who loves the Lord and the prophecy of Malachi has come true. They have the father heart of God and their heart is for you as their child. And as a result, your heart is what? For them. The God knits the heart of the father and the children together. That's a terrific dad. Now, some of you ask, why are we talking about this? I thought we were talking about spiritual warfare. A lot of spiritual warfare is in regards to unhealed hurts from your past that go all the way back to who your father is. I'll show it to you in Ephesians. And I wanna talk about something called um, the father wound. I, I've had the honor of preaching at a lot of events for men's big stadium events. Every time I hit this issue, I see healing in the lives of men. And then it also most assuredly applies to the ladies. But Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, 
Uh, Paul writes this book of the New Testament and the bookends in chapter four and chapter six are spiritual warfare. In the middle, he talks about marriage and parenting. You know why? Because that's where the war happens. The war always happens in the family. You need to know that part of Satan's intent is to get the family to attack, to harm, to not forgive, to curse one another. So I'll just, I'll give you an example. Ephesians 4, do not give the devil a foothold. In addition to God and angels, there is Satan who is a fallen angel and demons. That there was a war in heaven and all the wars on earth are a result of that war. And what Satan likes to do, he likes to get a foothold in your life. I could still remember um, when we were little kids, let's say, well, let's say I wanted to get something from my siblings room, but they didn't want me in. You ever play this game where you're pushing on the door? What's the goal? The goal is to get the door cracked. And as soon as the door is cracked, hopefully you have shoes on, what do you do with your foot? You stick your foot in the door and you're like, okay, now, I, now I'm winning. Satan wants to get his foot in your door. He wants to start to open the door to your life and your family. Say, well, how does he get his foot in the door? Uh, he does it through bitterness. Someone hurt you and you have not forgiven them. I don't know if you know this, that's how Satan gets into your house. So if you say, well, I didn't want him to move in. Well, you, he knocked, right? Somebody hurt you. You open the door and you're like, okay, I don't want you here. He's like, let me get my foot in the door. As long as you don't forgive them, now I can push the door open and I can move into the family. That's what he does. Through bitterness, unforgiveness. We talked about it last week. And what he says is forgiving one another just as God and Christ forgave you. So the way it works is that Jesus does something for you. He lives without sin. He dies on the cross in your place for your sin. He does something in you. He applies that forgiveness to you and he fills you with the person, the presence, the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he works through you to extend that grace, that forgiveness, that love to others. And so forgiveness is a gift that God gives you and he gives you that gift to share it with others. So forgiveness isn't complete until it's not only come to you, but it's gone through you to others. And what he's saying is, God does forgiveness, Satan does bitterness. Some years ago, did a massive study on forgiveness and unforgiveness. And oftentimes in the Bible where it talks about unforgiveness, it talks about the demonic. 2 Corinthians 2.11, the whole context is forgiveness. He said, Satan won't outwit us if we're aware of his schemes. One of his schemes is unforgiveness. Here, it's very clear. Bitterness is part of a demonic plot to take people who have been hurt for them to nurse that hurt, which invites more demonic torment and hurt, which agitates them to hurt others because all Satan wants to do is multiply the pain and suffering. So that's the context of the last half of Ephesians, spiritual warfare. Then in chapter five, it's about marriage because oftentimes the war comes to the marriage after the wedding. Chapter six, it transitions to this, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. What does that mean? Discourage them, frustrate them, harm them, 
belittle them, scream at them, abuse them, neglect them, hit them, abandon them. It, it causes a child to be very hurt, angry, frustrated. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Pray with them, talk to them about Jesus. Have the father heart of God and bring the father's heart to them. And then at the end of Ephesians 6, it continues, take your stand against the devil's schemes. What's one of his schemes? Fathers exasperating their children. Take your stand against the devil's schemes for a struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not just people, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What he's talking about here is spiritual warfare oftentimes happens through bitterness in marriage, particularly all the way back to your father. And really this is, this is a demonic attack to get you to be unhealthy, to be unhealed. You see the pattern? Warfare, warfare, fathers and children. That's where the battle oftentimes rages. And so let me ask the men, you know, if you're a single man, do you have a heart for children and one day your children? For you men who like me have the honor of being a father, what is your heart condition toward the father? Do you have the father's heart? Do you share the father's heart? For those of us who are given the honor of being grandfathers, do you have that father's heart for your children and grandchildren? And, and when it comes to the father wound, sometimes the person that hurts you the most is the one that you need the most, and that would be your dad. But you have two kinds of fathers, biblically. You have a biological and a spiritual father, and the same is true of mothers and parenting. So in the Old Testament, there's a lot of genealogies. This was this guy's dad, and this is this guy's dad, and this is this guy's dad. That's your biological fathers. Spiritual fathers are those who take a role in your life of authority and ministry. And so I'll give you some examples. Well, Abraham is called our father, right? He's our spiritual father for those of us who follow him in faith. There's a guy in the New Testament named Paul. He actually wrote Ephesians. And Paul, there is no indication that he was married or had any biological children, but he did have spiritual children. He calls three guys, Timothy, Titus, and Onesimus, my sons. So they're, they're like father-son relationship. He's mentoring them, he's coaching them, he's blessing them, he's helping them, he's, he's raising them in the Lord. Paul writes, I think it's in 1 Corinthians 4.15, he says, you have many teachers. There's a lot of books and podcasts, but you don't have many fathers. A father who's actually invested and involved in your life. He said, I became your father, through the preaching of the gospel. So his pastoral ministry was more fatherly and that was his heart for the people. You need to know, that's my heart for you. Uh, I started ministry before we had kids, right? Now our kids are getting older. And for me, I want a pastor out of the same place that I father. I want the same affection I have for our family to be experienced by you as our church family. Uh, there's another guy in the New Testament named John. He writes books, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and he keeps referring to the people in the church as my dear children. Right, he's got more the tone of a dad or a granddad. 
So who was your biological father and who has been to you, or you're at least hoping they would occupy the role of spiritual father? Now, the reason I ask this is because a father wound is unforgiveness, unresolved issues, or unhealed hurts, and it can come from a biological or a spiritual father. A biological or a spiritual father. And what happens is people who have a father wound, they tend to make their view of God either a projection or a rejection of their earthly father. Uh, All of this is in the book, grab the free copy on your way out, but I'll just read it to you quickly. Atheism says, I have no father. Agnosticism says, I may or may not have a father, but I've never met him. He's not looking for me and I'm not looking for him. Deism says, I have a father, but he left a long time ago. He's not involved in my life. We don't have a relationship. Something called Reformed theology says, I have a father, but he's a little distant, a little controlling, and sometimes a little angry. Something called Armenian theology says, I have a father, but he's passive. He kind of lets me make all my own decisions. Progressive or liberal theology says, God is more like a sibling who enables us than a father who leads us. So God's just like a permissive parent. And then feminist theology comes along and says, men are bad, let's just worship God as mother. Let's take the experience in our home of single parent mom and make that our spiritual reality as well and call God mother instead of father. My question to you would be, how do you view God? How do you view God? And if you had to pick, apart from of course, the name of Jesus, if you had to pick one word to describe how you perceive God, would it be father? Would it be father? If not, there may be an unhealed hurt. There may be a father wound in you from a biological or a spiritual father that needs to be healed. Let me talk to you about God the Father. Here's what Jesus says, John 14, six. Jesus loves talking about the father. Here's one of the things that he says. I am the way, singular and exclusive. I am the truth, singular and exclusive. I am the life, singular and exclusive. No one comes to who? The Father, except through me. Here's what I want you to know. The Holy Spirit, he'll show you, you're a sinner, you need God, you need a savior. Your relationship with God needs to be reconciled. So the Holy Spirit will bring you to Jesus. Jesus forgives your sin through his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus changes your heart, your life, your destiny, and then he introduces you to the Father. I am convinced that there are a lot of people that have been filled with the Spirit, met Jesus, but haven't made it to the Father. As a result, it is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who forgives you, but I believe it is God the Father who heals you. So you can still be forgiven and broken. And once you get to the father, that's where the healing happens. Because if you didn't have a dad, the Bible says, God says in the Bible, I'm a father to who? The fatherless. So that heals the wound and it meets the need. Some of you 
you had a good dad. Well, you're just doubly blessed if you had an earthly dad and a heavenly dad who both love you and have the same heart for you. When it comes to talking about God as father, this is something that is really not done much. In some churches, you'll learn about the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. In most churches, you'll hear a lot about Jesus Christ, the son of God, the second member of the Trinity. Very little is said about the father. There are lots of books written on the Holy Spirit, lots of books written on Jesus, not a lot written on the father. It's because I think a lot of people have a father wound and so they have a hard time even thinking about or perceiving accurately God as father. I believe it's a generational crisis. As you open the word of God, the Old Testament has a lot to say about fathers, genealogies, dads, granddads, generations. In the Old Testament, God is referred to as father roughly 15 times. That's in 39 books of the Old Testament, only 15 times. Two thirds of your Bible is the Old Testament. Only 15 times roughly does it refer to God as father and it's always national, it's not personal. It's like he's the father over us, but he's not my personal father that I have an intimate relationship with. All of this changes once Jesus Christ steps onto the stage of human history. Not a trick question, but what do you think Jesus' favorite name for God is? Father. He says it 165 times. 165 times. They're like, teach us to pray. He says, well, here's how you pray, our Father. I mean, he's talking to the Father and he's talking about the Father continually. And the little word that Jesus uses is Abba. There is no indication that any religion or religious leader applied this term to God until Jesus. It would make sense that the Son of God would reveal to us the Father God. Jesus uses this word Abba, and it's a great word. It doesn't mean daddy. That's the kind of word that a small child will use. It means dad, which a small child or an adult child could both refer to their father as dad. It's a personal, intimate, warm, relational term. And so God for Jesus, he reveals as father. Now, some of you ask, what is God the father like? Well, the good news is all you need to do is look at Jesus. Here's what Jesus says, John 14, nine, whoever has seen me has seen the, the father. See, sometimes people will say, well, the father's the mean one, Jesus is the nice one, and the Holy Spirit's the weird one. That's kind of how we present, you know, the Trinity, one God and three persons. The father's the mean one, Jesus is the nice one, the Holy Spirit's the weird one. That's not how it works. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says this, Paul does in Colossians 1.15, that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. So God the Father is immaterial and spiritual, right? He's not an old man in the sky. That's not how he is. That ultimately, Jesus comes as a mirror to reflect to us the character of God the Father. So if you feel loved by Jesus, that's from the Father. If you feel forgiven by Jesus, that's from the Father. If you feel safe with Jesus, it's because he's like the Father. So all that Jesus reveals to you and gives to you ultimately comes from God the Father. Now this being said, 
I believe that most people, but particularly Christians, tend to view God in one of two ways. God is master and they are slave, or God is father and they are son. And uh, I'll give you two verses on this. The first is in reference to the Lord Jesus. This is at his baptism in Luke 3. Um, he is getting baptized by John the baptizer in fulfillment of that prophecy that we read in Malachi. The Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus in the form of a dove and God the Father speaks from heaven. All three members of the Trinity are there present together. The Trinity is one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. That's the name of our church. And that is the Christian concept of God exclusively. The Father speaks over Jesus and says, this is my son. So nobody would miss it. In whom I am? Well, please. Okay, let me ask you this. What had Jesus done up until that point? Just went to work doing carpentry. Had he, had he preached a sermon yet? No. Had he cast out a demon yet? No. no. Had he raised a dead guy yet or healed a blind guy yet? Nope. So why was the father pleased in him? This is the father heart of God. You work from his approval, not for his approval. You work from his approval, not for his approval. God the Father doesn't say, Jesus, I'll see you at the finish line of life. And if you've done a good job, I'll be pleased with you. He starts at the starting line of Jesus' public ministry and says, this is my son, I'm pleased with him. Here's the deal, Jesus then doesn't live for approval, he lives from approval. That's how God wants you to live. Seeing God as father and he loves you, he approves of you, he is pleased with you. I'll prove it to you. Romans eight, again, the apostle Paul, who is a spiritual father, he says, all who are led by the spirit of God are Sons of God. Now, some of you ladies may ask, does that include me? The answer is yes. In that culture, there were two classifications, one for the males, one for the females. Males would own property, not females. Males could testify in court, not females. Males would receive the inheritance, not the females. So by saying that positionally, men and women, all of God's children are in the position of sons, Unlike us in our present day, those in the first century would have heard, for this, for the women, this would have been shocking. Oh, so you're saying that we're at the same level as the men? Yes. Yeah. God loves his sons and daughters the same, and he puts them both in the same category, and he honors both. So if you are a Christian, positionally, you're in the same position as Jesus. He is the Son of God, and through faith in him, you become the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery. We either see God as father and we're sons or as master and we're slaves. To fall back into fear, this transitions into the second half of the sermon, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. You're born not as a child of God, but you're born again and made a child of God, right? One of the reasons that Christians love adoption is because Christians were adopted, right? That God the Father adopted us as his kids and brought us into the family called the church where Jesus is our big brother. 
by whom we cry, what? Abba, Father, the same thing that Jesus said. The Spirit of God empowers the life of Jesus and he refers to God as Father. The same Spirit of God comes into us and we cry out that same word to the same Father from the same position. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, of children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. You will either tend to see God as Father and you as Son or God is master and you is slave. This is how you get what's called works, legalism, religion, pride, despair, performance. This is how you get to be like Jesus. The father loves you, he's adopted you, he's well pleased with you. I'll give you a comparison and contrast. God is master versus God is father. And in saying this, Some of you know that Jesus loves you, but you still struggle because your view of God is master, not father. Let me correct that. That's demonic deception. If God is master, a master uses a slave. A slave in that day was literally like a tool or an animal or a piece of property. It was simply part, that human being was part of the family estate. A father doesn't use a son, a father what? blesses a son. I'm here to give, not to take. I'm here to lift a burden, not give a burden. I'm here to make your life better. You're not here to make my life better. A master, you serve them. A father, what? They serve you. They serve you. How about this one? A master beats you down. A father builds you up. A master, you have no inheritance. You're not part of the family. Nothing belongs to you. If you are a son, you receive full inheritance. That's what he just told us in Romans 8. That down payment for that inheritance is God the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1 says. And we lay up our treasures in heaven and there's a full inheritance awaiting for you eternally in the kingdom of God. Let me say this, when all is said and done, everything that you have will be a gift from God. The healed body you occupy, the air you breathe, the water you drink, the home you live in, all of that will be gifts from the Father. Jesus talks about heaven as the Father's house. You're gonna move into, spiritually speaking, eternally speaking, the Father's house. And there's a full inheritance for you for all eternity. And here's the difference. A master motivates by fear, a father motivates by love. Is that true? It's true, isn't it? That's what he says. He has given us the Holy Spirit by which we cry, Abba, Father, and that keeps us from the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. The Holy Spirit wants you to see God as Father, wants you to see yourself as Son. Demonic spirits, spirits of fear, they want you to see God as Master and yourself as slave. Give you some examples. Sometimes people will do something that they regret and they will think, I need to pay God back. 
That's slave thinking, not son thinking. Well, I took something. Well, that's what children do, amen? Any of you have children? They're not an economic contributor, amen? They're an expense. You're going to cost the father some things and he's not going to make you pay him back and he's not going to punish you to pay him back. This mentality of God as master and we ourselves as slaves, it leads us to think that when we're suffering, God is punishing. That's not how it works. Jesus was already punished. He is well pleased with you and he would not punish you and Jesus because that would be unjust. The result is God's love encourages you to become like Jesus. And the opposite of that is demonic spirits of fear that paralyze you to live as a slave and not as a son, seeing God as a dangerous master and not a delightful father. How do you see God? Father or master? How do you see yourself, son or slave? The Holy Spirit wants you to belong to Jesus and he wants you to experience the adoption as sons. He wants you to cry out to God as father and enjoy that loving, intimate relationship. When this counterfeit spirit, because everything that God creates, Satan counterfeits. So the counterfeit view of God is master and the counterfeit view of you rather is slave. And what that creates and causes is a spirit of fear. If you're living under a father, you don't have a lot of fear, if it's a good father. What if you're living under a master? There's a lot to fear. There's a lot to fear. And let me tell you where the fear comes from. Um, it comes from a fallen, broken world that Satan entered. The first person in human history to articulate fear was Adam in Genesis 3. Genesis 1 and 2, God made Adam, Eve put him on the earth, provided everything, there was no fear. They sin against God, joining Satan. So Satan shows up, he takes the war in heaven, he brings it to earth, he then recruits Adam and Eve, our first parents in all of humanity, to join him in his rebellion. They sin against him and then God shows up. Here's the, what you need to know. God's looking for you. It's not in Genesis three, they sinned and they had to go looking for God. They sinned and God came looking for them. And, and what happens is God shows up looking for his kids. And what are they doing? They're hiding. Well, you, you hide from a father you fear, not a father who you are sure loves you, right? If you know your father loves you and you're in trouble, you run to them. If you think that they are master going to punish you, you hide from them. Here's what Adam says, I was afraid. That's the first time that anyone experienced or articulated fear. Fear was not part of God's original creation. Fear was only brought when Satan and the demonic entered into human history. Now that's shocking for us because every minute of every day for every person on the earth, this is what we experience. Fear, anxiety, heightened sense of alert, 
fight or flight response. Number one category of medications in America is antidepressants. People are very afraid. Where does this come from? How does this work? 2 Timothy 1.7, God gave us a spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Here's what I want you to see. Sometimes fear, it's a spirit. It's a spirit. It's a demonic presence that comes into your life to fill you with anxiety instead of faith to rob you of life rather than encouraging you to live. Just as the Holy Spirit wants to empower your faith, so demonic spirits want to empower your fears. What God creates, Satan counterfeits. When you choose faith and trust in God, the Holy Spirit empowers that, sets a tailwind behind you so that you can proceed forward. When you choose fear, you're inviting demonic spirits in and they likewise are going to compel you to continue in that direction with greater levels of anxiety and fear. This is where only a Christian who believes the Bible even understands the entire spiritual dimension of living under fear. The doctors can treat the body, the psychologists can treat the mind, but only the Holy Spirit can heal the heart and to have it be one of faith instead of one of fear. First John 4, 18, he says this, there is how much fear and love? None. God is a father, you are a son. If you are a Christian or become a Christian today, giving your life and sin to Jesus, his relationship with you is only love, only love. There is no fear in love, but perfect love. That's God's love, amen? See, we have love, but we don't have perfect love. Our love is always a bit selfish or maybe misguided. God's love is perfect and his perfect fear, his perfect love rather casts out fear. Just like light casts out darkness and truth casts out lies, it is the love of God that cleanses us and casts out from us a spirit of fear. Now, Jesus says this. He says, if someone has a demonic spirit and they don't know God, and we get rid of that demonic spirit, what returns? Seven more spirits. Let me apply this to fear. If you have a fear and you get rid of a fear, but you don't replace it with the love of God, your fear goes up sevenfold. It goes up sevenfold. It's only the love of the Father that casts out the spirit of fear. He says, for fear has to do with punishment, which is what? Slave master. You are a slave and God is your master and you're fearful because the master always punishes the slave. No, no, you need to know that God is a father and he loves and blesses the son. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. When we're talking about fear, sometimes this can be anxiety, this can be phobias. Underneath fear is always this lie. You are not safe. That's the lie. You are not safe. And then fear comes in. Oftentimes fear comes with this question, what if? 
and we, we hypothesize a future that causes us fear in the present. This can lead all the way to panic attacks, anxiety attacks. This can lead to phobias. This can lead to paranoias. It can turn from one to seven spirits of fear. What happens as well is our fears reveal who or what we love and hate. There's two sides to the fear coin. What is, one is what I want and the other is what I don't want. What I want and what I don't want. And fear is focused on losing what we want and getting what we don't want. That's where fear comes in. That being said, I think that fear is a tremendous issue for all people, including God's people. And when the Bible uses the language of a stronghold, that is some sort of past trauma or hurt that triggers you into a fear cycle and opens you to a spirit of fear. So let me hit this briefly, eight reasons that fear is a fraud. Fear is the counterfeit to discernment. Discernment is God says, okay, here's what's gonna happen. Here's how I need you to respond. Fear is different than discernment. Discernment prepares you for the future. Fear paralyzes you in the present. Fear makes us selfish. If your house is on fire, you're not thinking about other people. You've got a crisis. If you live in fear, you become a selfish person because you're anxious about yourself and you have no energy left for them. Fear makes us ineffective. It makes us paralyzed, stuck, inactive. Single guy, why don't you ask that girl out? She might reject me. Well, if she does, you're in the same position you are today. So go give a risk, you know? Why don't you apply for that job? Well, what if I get the job and then I lose the job? Well, it, it makes us ineffective and inactive. It paralyzes decision-making. Some of you, you're in a crossroads where you've got a major decision to make and you've looked at every possible apocalyptic doom outcome. And as a result, you can't make a decision. Fear causes us to lose touch with reality. What happens when we're living out of fear and the spirit of fear instead of faith and the Holy Spirit, we become very emotional. What happens physically, biologically, you have a fight or flight response. You're heightened alert, endorphins are firing, adrenaline is firing, all your systems are on, and you're either gonna, you're either gonna fight, get all agitated and irritable, or flight, you're gonna disappear and hide. Both of which cause us to, to miss reality. Now it feels real to you. It feels real to you, but it's not based on reality, it's based on a lie. Jesus tells us in John 8 that Satan is the father of lies, lying is his native language. When you get a lie, if you believe it, you'll live in light of it and miss reality. Number five, fear causes us to be God. When we're afraid of something, we want to be knowing and controlling. People that have control issues, they really have fear issues. God is all-knowing, God is all-controlling. When we are gripped by a spirit of fear, we wanna know everything and control everything in everyone. High control. Because I'm not safe unless I'm in God's position. 
God won't keep me safe, only I can keep me safe. Now we don't necessarily always say this to ourselves, but this is showing you the math of what is happening when a spirit of fear takes over your life. Fear also robs us. Jesus tells us that there is a thief who comes to steal, kill and destroy. Fear will take your sleep, fear will take your energy, fear will take your clarity, fear will take your joy. How do I know? Took mine. There were seasons in my life that I had fears, couldn't sleep. Living off of adrenaline, blow out my adrenal glands. Intestinal ulcer, medical problems, all because of a spirit of fear. It robs, fear robs. Fear makes us double-minded and unstable. Jesus', Jesus brother James says this. It's like, okay, Lord, that's what you want me to do. Uh-oh, it might not go the way that I want. Life is like this for a lot of people. Okay, I'm gonna do what God said. No, I don't like what might happen. I'll retreat. Makes you unstable. Unstable. You don't put one foot in front of the other in your walk with God. You take one step forward and one step backward and the fear paralyzes you. And fear turns us into false prophets. What a false prophet is and does, a false prophet prophesies a future that doesn't come to pass. The most powerful false prophet in your life is you. I'm doomed. Don't prophesy that in your future. Don't look at your spouse and say, you're gonna leave me. Don't prophesy that. What we do is we look at the future. We don't consider that God will be in it. We invite a spirit of fear instead of the Holy Spirit and the love of God, which casts out the fear. And the result is we are convinced that there is doom for us and we become false prophets in our own life. Let me do a little case test study with you. How many of you have feared something that didn't happen? (laughs) Right? We've all done this. We're like, oh no, I'm fine. It didn't happen. I'm okay. <laughs> that's, that's you being a false prophet in your life. Now, let me, let, me, let me talk a little bit about home structures and family systems. And I want this to be for mothers and fathers, but first and foremost, I want this to be for the fathers. You set an environment in your home and the spirit over your home of fear or love. Sometimes our fears are in relation to the people and things we love the most, like our kids and family. How many of you didn't have a lot of fears until you started having a couple kids? Like I wasn't freaked out, now I am. There's a lot to be afraid of, it's a dangerous world filled with evil and evildoers. I'm not saying that there is no reason to fear, but I'm saying that fear never leads you into the will of God. Only faith does that. Fear will cause you to respond to everyone and everything rather than respond to him alone. What happens is if you are a fear-based person, you will bring a spirit of fear into your home environment with your family. What happens then is the kids are nervous, they're scared, they're anxious, they're silent, they're retreated, they're 
they're always sort of living under this auspices of slave master to where they're not really loved and they're not really safe. And if they don't do it right, then they're going to be punished. You set a spirit of fear over a home. I want you to set a spirit of love over the home. And love and fear will address the same issue in two totally different ways. I'll give you an example. How many of you have got a teenage daughter? Okay, if you're a dad, does that bring you fear? Say yes, okay, yes. Okay, you look at the world, you look at your teenage daughter, you're like, some bad things can happen. So true or false, if you love your daughter, you want her to only date and marry a good godly guy who has the father's heart, amen? Say yes, yes. Okay, now what if she brings home a guy who's not that guy? I met this guy, he's just out of rehab. You know, he's, he's, he's praying, about, praying about a job. You know, he's not sure he feels called to work, but he's praying about it. He has, a, a, he has the most beautiful neck tattoo. Oh, if you're that guy, you're still welcome here, but, we're, but you can't date anybody. That's, that's how it's gonna go. Okay, now, <laughs> this, this is what happens when you make up your illustrations as you go. So, um, so your daughter brings this guy home. If you respond in fear, you're going, to, you're going to attack him, an apocalyptic, he's gonna get you pregnant, you're gonna give birth to the Antichrist, the two of you are gonna be robbing banks and all of my grandkids will be heroin addicts. No, that's fear. Love is, do you believe that this is God's best for you? Do you believe that they have the Father's heart? Do you believe that this would be the Father's choice for you as his beloved daughter? See, fear and love address the same issue, but they address it quite differently. One doesn't really give you a hopeful future. The other gives you the possibility of a joyful future. How many of you grew up in a home that was a fear-based environment? Okay. There was a spirit of fear over your home. So how do you get rid of that? get to know God as Father and have the Holy Spirit, the spirit of love, cast out the spirit of fear in the environment of the home. Some of the most legalistic parents, some of the most high controlling parents, some of the most domineering parents think that they are loving and they're not, they're fearful. And fear and love don't coexist, love casts out fear. Love casts out fear. So what do you do if you have fears? Let me pull these two concepts together. Some of the staff this morning, they're like, this is like two or three sermons. Yes, it is. I always say it's like a group on here. You get a sermon and another one. That's how we do this. So let me pull these two together for you on the father and the future and the fears of the future. What do you do with your fears? Bring them to your father. Bring your fears to your father. Jesus says, I won't leave you as orphans. An orphan heart, an orphan spirit is, I'm on my own. No, you're not. You have a father and he's there to help. So invite him into your fears. This is Grace's, my wife. This is her life verse. Philippians 4, 4 through 7. 
rejoice. We're gonna bring the band up and do that shortly. Rejoice in the Lord when? What, what if I got, what if I'm scared today? It's, it's still always time, okay? Again, because sometimes I'll be like, are you sure? Do you know what I'm up against? Life hurts. I'll say it again, rejoice. Always rejoice. Let your reasonableness, that's your mental capacity to navigate your way through reality be known to everyone. The Lord is where? He's right there. You're not, you're not an orphan, you're a son. Do not be anxious. So I'm like, what does that mean in Greek? Freaking out, fearful, stressed, you. It means you, okay, that's what it means. Don't be anxious about, how many of you have fears in categories and not others? Money freaks me out, not relationships. I, I don't have any problem serving people, but I have a lot of anxiety about leading them. We have categories for our fears. But in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, tell your dad, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, this is supernatural, not natural, will guard, that's a military term, your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Five things based on Philippians four. Use both eyes. When he says, rejoice, have thanksgiving, what tends to happen is there are some people who are fearful and God has given you two eyes so that you can see God and Satan, good and evil, truth and lies, right and wrong, what God is doing and what others are seeking to undo. Some people who are fear-based, it's literally like they close one eye and all they see is Satan, demons, evil, fear, terror, horror. Other people, they, they ignore fear and all they see is the bright side, optimism, it's gonna be, they don't deal with reality. You need to get a job. Oh, the Lord will provide. Yeah, he does through getting a job. So <laughs> you need to go get a job. Well, I'm not afraid. Well, you, you should be. You don't have a job, right? So God wants you to use both eyes, right? Here's the good and the bad that's happening in life. And every day, every moment of every day, both things are happening, good and bad, amen? Which one should we focus on? the good and what God is doing. That's the rejoicing with thanksgiving. So when you are fearful, start finding things to rejoice in, right? Number two, make your will your rudder. When you're fearful, you're very emotional, but you're not very rational. Any of you married? Have you seen this? Any of you raised a child? When a child is very emotional, are they easier to reason with? Say no, no. Because when we're emotional, we're not very rational. Our emotions are like a sail, our mind and our will are the rudder. When there's a lot of passion and intensity because of the fear, the reasonableness is keeping your mind to navigate through it so you don't get pushed off into the rocks and then shipwrecked. Rel replace, he tells us, panic with prayer. He says, don't be anxious but pray. 
You're like, well, I'm freaking out. Okay, then bring it to God. God will be the lightning rod that grounds out the storm. God will remind you of his love, which will cast out the spirit of fear. God will release the pressure in prayer so that he helps you carry that burden. In addition, what happens when we pray, we are trusting that God is doing things that we're not seeing. So you can either panic or pray. Pray about what you normally panic about. Replace panic with prayer. Number four, tell the Father what you want. He says, make your requests known to God. When you are fear-based, you know what you don't want, you don't know what you want, right? When you're fear-based, you know what you don't want, you don't know what you want. Making your requests known to God is how you decide what you want. Make your requests known. Do slaves make requests of masters? Nope. Do sons make requests of fathers? Yeah, yeah. So make your requests known. Sometimes people have the most fear when they're not sure what to do and they've maybe got a decision to make or a big life decision to make. And they're just like, God, what do you want me to do? God, what is your will? And they become paralyzed seeking the will of God. Much of God's will is simply revealed in his word. Husbands, love your wives. Dads, raise your kids. Employees, do a good job. Employers, treat them fairly, right? A lot of principally, the Bible deals with what we struggle with practically. But there are other times that we have a specific decision to make and we're not sure which way to go. And sometimes I think we're looking at God and we're like, what do you want me to do? And I think sometimes God is asking this question, what do you wanna do? I've got five kids, I love them with all my heart. Sometimes I tell them what we're doing. Sometimes I ask them what they wanna do. This is how God the Father parents. Make your requests known to God. What's, what do you, if God doesn't tell you, then ask him if it's okay what's in your heart. It's where the Bible says, Psalm 37, four, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. I take that to mean that if we're enjoying our loving relationship with God, the desires of our heart will come from his heart and we'll share the heart of God. So sometimes when I meet with people, they're like, I'm so paralyzed. I got a decision. Well, what do you want? I don't know. Okay, that's what you need to figure out and see if God says yes. Let your requests be known to God. Tell the Father what you want and enjoy God's peace and presence. He says that, that this will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. It's a military term. It's like the Holy Spirit is standing at attention, battling against the spirit of fear. He's there to guard your heart and mind, your emotional and your mental life. And then he also says in Philippians 4, for I am with you. The Lord is at hand. That's how he says it. The number one command in the Bible is fear not. When I looked it up, I found it appeared in some form or fashion about 150 times. Why does God keep saying fear not? Because we keep experiencing a spirit of fear. I looked him up and most of the time when God says in some form or fashion, fear not, he then says for 
I am with you. The Lord is at hand. The presence of God is bigger than the problem. You are not an orphan, you are a son. You are not a slave, you are a son. You do not have a master who takes from you, you have a father who gives to you. You don't have an, an absent father, you have an active father. And as a result, you can live a different life. A couple of things in closing and then a story. Number one, when you, what you fear may not happen. Amen? I dealt with somebody this week. They said, when my mom was 31, she was diagnosed with terminal cancer and we just celebrated her 94th birthday. Like, well, that's different. That's incredible. Sometimes what you fear, it simply doesn't happen. Number two, sometimes the fear is worse than the thing you fear. That the fear takes so much time and energy that it actually robs you of more than the thing that you're fearing. Number three, sometimes you will go through the thing that you fear and you will find that you are still okay. I told that to Grace this week. There was things that I was afraid of and many of them happened. And I looked at Grace, we had to staff Bible study and I said, we're good. She said, no, actually we're better. The thing I feared the most, God used the most to bless me the most. I didn't see that when the spirit of fear came. I only see that after the Holy Spirit comes. All this to say, take your fears to your father and then your father will walk with you through your fears. I'll close with a story. Uh, some years ago, I've told this story before, but God reminded me of it on the way in. When the kids were little, we'd take them traveling with us. And so I think our kids were like two, four, six, eight, ten. We took them to Scotland. It seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> they did pretty good, but it was a situation. So before we left, I like, I'm the event planner at the Driscoll Nation. So I like to always, hey, here's what we're doing. Here's what we're, I always like fun on the calendar, something planned. So I'm telling the kids, we're going to Scotland. It's gonna be amazing. And you're gonna go to John Knox's house and you're gonna see castles and it's gonna be amazing. And we're gonna do this great adventure. My littlest son was about two and he'd just furrow his brow and be like, I'm not going, <laughs> I'm not going. So I'd pull him aside privately and I'd increase the sales pitch. You're gonna be on an airplane. Unlike me, you'll fit in the seat. You're gonna find it large and roomy. It's gonna be amazing. There's a little button. If you hit it, they'll bring you juice or pop as much as you want. I have bought you, you know, a little video game thing. All the snacks that mom forbids you, we're gonna put in your Scooby-Doo backpack and you will carry them with joy in your heart to the Lord. This is gonna, he's like, I'm not going. He got very defiant. He wasn't a defiant kid. I said, buddy, when you get there, you're gonna get to ride in a double-decker bus. He's like, I'm not going on the bus. I said, buddy, you're gonna ride in one of those old school black cabs. He said, I'm not going. I am not going to Scotland. So I, I, I literally got down, I looked him in the eye, I said, hey, little buddy, I love you. I'm excited to go to Scotland with you and it won't be any fun unless I have my little buddy. Here's what he said, oh, you're going? <laughs> I, I said, yeah, 
I forgot to tell him that. He's thinking, I gotta get to the airport. I gotta find my seat. I need to exchange my currency. I gotta find a double-decker bus. I gotta figure out who John Knox is. I don't know where the castle's at. He has what? Fear. What took away his fear is knowing that his father was going with him. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are a father and that your love casts out fear. Lord God, I pray for all of your dear dear children, the sons and the daughters that occupy the position of son. God, it's not that this world has nothing to fear, but if our father goes with us, it should change our fears. It should transform our fears. Father, I just wanna say thank you. You have been exceedingly faithful to me and my family. Some of the things that I feared most happened and as Grace said, we are blessed, not cursed. That we're not just good, we're better. Father, we invite your presence. I claim the promise of Philippians 4. The Lord is at hand. He is present. He is here to minister, to love, to unburden. And so Father, we invite your love. We stand in your love. We rejoice in your love. And I am asking Holy Spirit that you, the spirit of love, would cast out the spirit of fear from these dear people and restore to them the loving joy that the Father intends for them in Jesus' name, amen.